The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 103 of the Squawk Ident podcast, recorded on Thursday, February 24th, 2022, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, we discuss the recent events on board an American Airlines flight that caused the captain to make a decision to divert the aircraft after an onboard disturbance turned into a security threat. I'm also joined on the flight deck today by Alex Daigle. He is here to discuss his successful completion of an ATP-CTP program out of flight safety in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So stay with us while we run our final checklist as we prepare to depart on flight 103 of the Squawk Ident podcast. Well, today, as you can tell, I am running solo, at least for this part of the show. The boys are all stuck somewhere out in the system due to this recent storm that's passing through most of the Midwest and in Texas. I'd like to give a shout out to Kyle, who's stuck in Philadelphia on his attempt to deadhead back to base. Rob is currently on a deadhead flight from Boston back to Dallas. And Roger, well, he's in the Dominican Republic babysitting two airplanes and just enjoying himself in the sunlight. So I really don't feel bad for Captain Roger. What I would like to start off the show today with is a look at American Airlines Flight 1775 that departed Los Angeles on Sunday, February 13th at 11.15 a.m. en route to Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. Now on a side note, as a pilot, If you find yourself flying into Reagan National Airport or DCA, note, and do not make the same mistake I did. Quick side story. My first time flying into Reagan National, I read the approach plates. I studied the approach criteria. Uh, The captain I was flying with was a Czech airman who was very experienced. And as we were flying in, I was a new hire at a regional airline over at Sandpiper. And I was told to contact Tower. So I read the name of the airport right off the approach plate, and I called it Reagan Tower. And the controller responded with, oh, Reagan Tower, huh? And the captain looked at me and he said, what did you do? And she's like, well, um, I guess you're cleared the visual. And I was then informed that the controllers at Reagan National Airport do not like to be called Reagan Tower, and it has to do with the fact that Reagan made the controllers go back to work when they were striking many years ago. You can look up on Wikipedia to get the history of it. So whenever you fly into DCA, make sure you call it Washington Tower, and they would very much appreciate that. So enough about the politics of aviation. Let's get into this article posted on simpleflying.com. 
by Luke Bedell, published on February 14th, 2022. The article is entitled, American Airlines Flight Diverts After Passenger Tries to Open the Door. The unruly passenger attempted to breach the cockpit and open an exit door before he was subdued by passengers and crew. And this is particularly what I wanted to focus on. An American Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. had to land in Kansas City after a passenger tried to force their way into the cockpit before attempting to open an exit door. Other passengers and cabin crew stopped the unruly passenger before the plane made an emergency landing in Kansas City. According to eyewitnesses, the passenger attempted to breach the cockpit and open the plane door. Reports indicate that the passenger was a middle-aged man who had been behaving strangely earlier in the flight. A recording between the pilot and air traffic control captured the incident. The flight operated with an Airbus A320neo took off from LAX at 9.17 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and was approximately three hours into its journey before the incident occurred. Local and federal law enforcement met the aircraft in Kansas City before taking the passenger into custody, an FBI special agent, Charles Dayob, said. A combination of passengers and flight crew stopped the passenger. Reports suggest that one flight attendant repeatedly used a coffee pot to subdue the individual who ended up bleeding profusely. A passenger on board, Moaz Mostafa, told CNN. Mr. Mostafa uploaded a video of the incident to his Twitter account. Of course he did. Passengers on board the aircraft were then rescheduled onto another flight. They waited at Kansas City International Airport for around three hours before boarding their rescheduled flight. 2021 saw over 1,000 FAA investigations into unruly onboard behavior. This amounted to more investigations in one year than the combined seven previous years. The FAA has received 5,981 reports over. 2021 alone, with 72% of those related to masks. This incident does not appear to be mask-related. Just a month ago, another American Airlines flight experienced a similar incident after a passenger flying from Honduras to Miami breached the cockpit during the boarding process. And according to another article from a Kansas City NBC affiliate, KSHB, posted by Sam Hartle, when the commotion started, Karen Alston, a passenger on the flight sitting in row 17A, says she was simply watching a movie when, quote, all of a sudden the cabin lights came on and I saw about eight men jump ahead towards first class, she said. We, sta- we started descending very, very quickly and I knew we were landing. I knew immediately we were landing. As a frequent flyer on American Airlines, Alston said she never imagined she would witness something of this nature. She thanks the men and women who saved her life and the lives of the others on the flight. She was also quoted as saying, Life is a precious thing that we would all like to continue. And so, in hindsight, I am thankful for the men that risked their lives to save ours today. They are heroes and they deserve to be praised, Alston said. Once the FBI completed interviews, the remaining passengers were expected to resume their flights to Washington, as they did. Now, what I wanted to talk about was the fact that these kind of incidences are becoming more and more common. 
and not in a million years that I think when I started my journey in aviation that I would have to be considering all the security threats that are happening today. So it's important to keep your head on a swivel, keep your chin up, keep your eyes open. If you see something that just makes your subconscious say, this isn't right, if you see it, say something about it. We cannot be too careful in this day and age. And my hat's off to the flight attendant crew, the cabin crew, and the flight deck crew for doing such a fantastic job. And I just cannot thank enough the able-bodied passengers or the ABPs that stepped up in this incident. Now, I'm no stranger to these kind of events. I've had a few myself in my career, and they are extremely nerve-wracking and stressful. We don't know what someone is going to do when they do the unexpected like this. And when you're trapped in a pressurized tube six miles over the surface of the earth, traveling at 500 miles an hour, there is no tolerance for this kind of behavior. So whenever a cabin crew member finds themselves in a fight to save the lives of everyone on board, you use whatever means necessary. Coffee pots, tray tables, anything anything you can get your hands on. You can use those carts. Now, we're not going to get into the security-sensitive information that the TSA has published because those are all set for need-to-know basis only. And disclosing such information is a federal offense. But we can say this. If you find yourself on a flight and you see something that's going on, by all means, if you are able-bodied, do what you can because the life you save will definitely be your own. Joining us today from Studio 405 from the La Quinta Inn and Suites in West Ulysses in the DFW area, braving a winter storm that has grounded almost hundreds, if not more than hundreds of flights in the last uh, day and a half. He was supposed to go home a day and a half ago, and he's stuck there at the La Quinta, of all places. Brave man, I tell you. Help us in congratulating a newly minted ATP written graduate from the ATP course there in Texas, Alex Daigle. Alex, welcome back to the show, and how are you? Uh, cold, Tony. I'm really cold. Uh, a whopping 28 degrees here in Eulis uh, outside of the airport, and uh, just trying to stay warm and try to stay sane while I uh, wait until Saturday to get home. I can't believe that. I mean, you're there a week doing the training, doing the ground course, and you passed your ATP written. Congratulations uh, on behalf of all of us here and and all the listeners as well, I'm sure. uh, Congratulations is in order. Uh, An ATP written is no easy task. It's one of the most difficult written exams that a pilot will take in their journey in aviation. And you took yours and passed. I, I... Really had a big smile on my face when you text me your passing uh, certificate, your slip. Um, and we're just so very proud of you. And we have you on the show today because we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience. On the last show, we talked about you were getting ready to go. You had amassed enough hours. You had your conditional letter of employment from the airline we call Sandpiper. And this was the week where you actually went and got certified. Walk us through that process. How did it all begin? 
so Sandpiper uh, was wonderful enough to to send me out here on uh, one of their uh, parent company's flights, uh, put me up in the glorious La Quinta Inns and Suites here in Euless, uh for the week. And uh, it started out by going to the facility, ATP Jets, here in the DFW area and getting indoctrinated, kind of checked in, getting you kind of all set up in your classroom, getting you a tour of the facility so that you can kind of see where things are. Um, and from there, it rolled immediately into uh, our day one stuff of learning and uh, basically covering over the course of four days in classrooms, a whole bunch of stuff. And I, I, I have a, kind of just a, like day one was high altitude aerodynamics, stall prevention and upset or, and upset prevention recoveries, uh, airplane weather detection systems, uh, air carrier low visibility operations, and operationals control, which talked about dispatchers and dispatching flights and all that stuff. And I actually, uh, I learned more about, um, out of that whole day, I learned more of uh, what the dispatcher does and how truly efficient they are and how well they help an airline. Uh, so that was my biggest, like, my, out of all of them, that was the big takeaway from that, to, uh, out of that day. A lot of the stuff was kind of, I wouldn't say a refresher, but it was kind of just reinforcing topics that you had to study and know going into your interviews and, and even into some of the private pilot, commercial pilot stuff. I mean, everybody knows how to recover from a stall, lower your nose, add some power, right? Get airflow going over the wings, right? So that's nothing new that we haven't learned going way back into to early days, but Obviously, the the big thing with that is um, they they talk about when you recover from a stall, it may take five, six, seven thousand feet coming from thirty five thousand to recover from that stall. Yeah. So you know, and it, it's it's different. It's just it's different with the aerodynamics of it all. Yeah. Um, now, the first time I think and, that happened uh, to me in the simulator was when I was at Sandpiper as a new hire and they had to demonstrate high altitude stall recovery. And it was such an eye-opening experience as you're mentioning, because in a Cessna or a 152 or 172 or in a Piper Arrow or whatever you're flying, even a Seminole or, or Archer, uh, the stall recovery technique is relatively simple and it's uh, very quick. I mean, it's just, it's so responsive, you know, push the nose over, add some power. And within a matter of feet, you can recover the aircraft. If you're, if you're on the spot, you know, and, and you recover quickly. And when you're in a swept wind, uh, turbine aircraft, and you're at high elevation above 27, 28, 29,000 feet, getting into the thirties, and you take the airplane and put it into a slow speed stall, it takes a long time to recover. You push that nose over and that elevator authority is spongy, it's minimal. And by the time your nose uh, goes forward, and, and you probably experienced this did you, uh, in the simulator, if you had some simulator time, that mm -hmm. if you react and go, okay, the nose is over and I can put, bring it back up slowly to oh. minimize your, you're just going to a secondary stall. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what, we, so that's what we experienced. So we, we got, uh, so we did four days of class, right? And I'll, I'll talk about the other days, uh, here in a second, what they, what we covered, but when we went into the Sims, um, that we did actually do upset, uh, we did both high speed and, and you know, low speed recoveries up at altitude. And, you know, there's, uh, they, they put us into the situation where they kind of showed us what coffin corner looks like up at altitude. And then I think we did it in the, what did I do it in the ERJ? 
uh, the, we actually got to be in a, a 170. So it's actually kind of nice because that's hopefully the plane that I'm going to uh, be flying uh, for Sandpiper. Um, so it's nice to actually get into that airplane and see how it is. Yeah. But we did a high speed and low speed um, recovery on the high altitude stall slash mock buffet. And man, I, the, the, the brilliant thing about it is like it takes, I, it, I think it took me, I think we did, we started my stall at 35,000 feet. And I didn't recover until just about 30,000. And that was pushing the nose over and you have to watch your speed tape. Uh, and they'd say the, the, the green dot um, the, on the speed tape, if you know what I'm talking about, the green dot, you have to get above the green dot to be able to start your recovery. And, and, and man, that it took 5,000 feet when in, in a Cessna, if you're like, you're saying, if it's good enough, like you really can recover in 50 feet, Yeah, you know? it's really just releasing the control pressure and letting that airplane stabilize this one. It's you have to force it to recover. Mm -hmm. So it was eye opening. Really? It was what was even cooler though, was the, uh, the mock Buffett, uh, demo. And that is violent. It <laughs> shakes violently. Yeah. Did you shake the SIM off of motion? Do you know what I'm talking uh, about? No, I do know what you're talking about, but no, we did not. I actually, we actually, when we were in the, the, the 320 SIM, uh, we, uh, my, uh, SIM partner, uh, was doing a contaminated runway takeoff and, uh, it was an icy condition, icy condition simulation. Sure. And, uh, he, uh, the, the instructor failed the engine and below VMCG. So it was a contamination plus a VMCG demo. And he, stood on that rudder and broke the rudder oh wow. they had they had they had to come uh re the the, the tech guys had to come and reset the sim for us because yeah. we had no rudder authority after that basically the sim said you put too much i don't know what you want so i'm just gonna stop yeah yeah there's like a i forget how many pounds of like is it 50 or 55 uh pounds of foot pressure uh, and I, I could be way off on that, but I know there's a certain pounds of pressure. Once you exceed that, uh, the servo or feel back unit, whatever it is, the, the artificial feel back unit and the simulator says, oh, you've exceeded the pressure. Uh, this is going offline. <laughs> and then you have to restart the entire simulator. When you have the computer that runs those multimillion dollar CAE sims or, you know, they're, they're in a room modern day computers in an entire room and there are mm -hmm. multiple servers multiple because the millions if not billions of data entry points there are uh, scenarios possible for the simulator and i mean there's like the computer that just deals with the motion there's the other computer that deals with just the visuals that are being projected mm -hmm. i mean when you're in there uh it's like you're being you're outside on a real airplane now granted it you could see the human eye is good enough. It can tell the difference. You can see the visualization, uh, computer buffeting, um, the blurriness of motion is there that you're, it's not in real life. Uh, but those simulators are so realistic. Oh, yeah. No, so we did um, three different sims three different times. And uh, we did, it's called, I have the notes for it. It's called a level five. That's the full mock-up 
non-motion simulator. And that was our, our seven, three, that was our first day into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and even that with the no motion was still so realistic of like being in an airplane. Yeah. You can look out the screen and you're like, okay, I can see that the semi cheesy computer graphics of like out in the distance. But as far as you're concerned, when you're in there, it flies and responds exactly like an airplane does, yeah. you know, you treat it exactly like an airplane. Yeah, you know, even though you're going into you a hear that box. this week, <laughs> treat it like an airplane. Uh, don't don't treat it like a computer. No, actually, we didn't hear that 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 many times. It's just, I mean, we kind of knew going into it. I mean, it's it's an airplane. You know what I mean? Regardless of if it's sitting on the ground or up on some hydraulics, it's still an airplane, and it still does the exact same thing. Yeah. The only difference is is you have a nice pause button that you can hit to uh, you know talk about things and redo things and oh hey let's not do it that way and so you know, uh, what happened there. <laughs> exactly. And that, and that's exactly what it is, is that we had a couple of times of like, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. Uh, let's, uh, let's try that one again, you know? Yeah. So, so that's um, interesting that you, so this, and you're going to get into more detail here as, as we progress through your experience with it, but this program, it, it really is so in depth. I mean, you got simulator time and, and different mm -hmm. simulators. So let's, let's get it back to, to the cycle of events. You spent the first day in the simulator Demi no no no. so we, we spent day four days in class oh, okay four so days in class and then and then three in the sim okay so four days of ground school instruction reviewing mm -hmm. what you were going to do for the simulator event and going through the required knowledge for the atp test yes that that is actually 100 percent what it is is it's basically a, a wicket mark at this point for the the FAA to say you've gone through this course uh obviously this is all in light of the Colgan air crash mm -hmm. uh that that sparked this whole 1500 hours and you know going through this uh more I wouldn't say in-depth training but getting you know the new pilots coming in the the kind of the more knowledge into this world of you know how airplane operations work, how airline operations work, what how transport category crafts differ from, you know, 172s. The class of uh, um, 45 of us, there were, I think, a handful. And when I mean handful, I mean less than like six people that had some kind of outside jet or turbine aircraft experience. Mm. Like the girl that I sat next to in class, um, I actually sat next to my buddy uh, from my flight school, who's going on to uh, Gold Standard Airlines. Uh, and shout out to to Daniel Shimon for passing his ATP written and moving on to uh, to Gold Standard Airlines. Uh, that he uh, we we sat next to each other, so it was nice to actually have somebody in there that we knew. Mm -hmm. uh, but the the girl I sat next to, she was a C one thirty driver. Uh, there was a couple. Uh -huh. uh, Blackhawk guys from the army, mm -hmm. a couple corporate guys, but the majority of us were all 172 instructors from around the country. Mm -hmm. So, well, I say 172, I use that term loosely. GA, single engine, small aircraft. You Normally know. aspirated, yeah. All that, yeah, yeah all, all, that, all that good jazz, right? That, that, that was us. That was us around the country mm -hmm. that were there. And I mean, they, there's people from Miami to the Midwest to to the Pacific Northwest. To, there's actually a guy from uh, from Riverside uh, ATP that was there that uh, Daniel knew. So it was kind of nice to actually have like some connection to Southern California. Mm -hmm. So 
but yeah, it was, it, we all didn't have this experience, you know, we don't have jet experience. So this was a eye opening for us, obviously going through all this stuff, talking about crew fatigue and, and you know, physiology for flight and, and checklists and, and man, how checklists are a major thing. And actually, surprisingly, when we were in the 320 sim, the, the, the checklist for the 320, it was a, it was a, a Spirit Airlines 320 sim because they use, uh, they have some location there, right? But their checklist was like a five by seven note card, double-sided. Yeah. And it was just, it. it was shocking. Yeah, that was it. Hmm. It was sh- because, you know, most, most airlines, you guys are, when you guys get into the cockpit, you guys are going through flows and, you know, and, and doing everything to set everything up in a flow and then just bouncing that off of each other. So it was, now I, I'm not putting. Eight by yeah. eight. I think it's eight and a half by eight and a half for, this is the checklist that we use on the A320 family of aircraft over at Legacy Airlines. Uh, for those of you listening, it's a, it's an eight by eight white double-sided checklist. And it's in chronological order. I've laminated mine. It's something that the company allows. You can laminate it. The reason I laminate it is, for one, I don't lose it because it's noisy and it's bright and shiny. And and for two, I can wipe it down and stuff. And it doesn't tear and rip and stuff. But yeah, checklist is key. I mean, if you look at that, our before start checklist. Now, granted, we've done our pre-flight flows, uh, triggers and flows and things like that. And this before start checklist, every single flight, because I'm reading it because I'm the FO, right? The captain is doing the response unless there is one of these uh, symbols here, which means both cockpit crew members must respond. So, for example, uh, you were talking about the checklist. Spirit Airlines has a checklist that's like a five by seven card. Now, granted, Maybe we're overdoing it at Legacy, I think sometimes, but every single flight, you know, record a ground controller. The other person says, on. You know, AML flight forms. The captain says, on board reviewed. And the first officer also says, on board reviewed. And they note the aircraft tail number to make sure you're in the right tail number. And what they're checking on that is that the tail number on the placard, the tail number on the flight plan, and the tail number on the AML, that's key, are all the same. Because how many times has maintenance come on board, they fixed something, and they had three AML books under their arm, and they threw the AML book in the cockpit and said, all right, you guys are good to go. The pilots take off, and then they realize, oh, we got the wrong book in our airplane. <laughs> We're not legal. Um, and, and so the checklist is extensive. It's crucial. And what did mm-hmm. you, do you remember what you had on the, Airbus checklist there for the any of those? They so they they gave us a, a little like ATP checklist, nothing fancy like that. It was just enough to get us moving, right? Like it was obviously that's more airline specific, and this is super generic stuff, right? But okay. I mean, for the most part, there was super, there was a, I was looking in there the the before start. You had eleven items in there, and I think we had like five or six. Oh, okay, so yeah, I mean, we we you know they the the whole point of this wasn't to to you know, train us to be an Airbus pilot. The whole point of this was to get us turbine experience and be in a crew environment, which was the overall arching theme and get us a little bit of jet time and have some fun while doing it. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's so, right. You got to log your your simulator time. I did. I have now 10 hours in a <laughs> level D or level five full simulator. So I have real jet experience. I'm oh. a real pilot now. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a fantastic experience. So your your ground training, was that eight hours every day? Pretty much. Uh, other than the last day, uh, we uh, we were pretty much uh, eight to, to five or six every day. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, there was a lot. Uh, and I have a spiral notebook that's, you know, three quarters of the way full of notes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the one thing I will say for, for the future aviators that are trying to go through this is, um, they're not going to kind of stop and talk about each slide individually. They will. Right. But, um, if you want to take notes, like I took notes, uh, take pictures and, and transpose them later because sometimes they're just going to go through a slide and they're just gonna be like, Oh yeah, we talked about that and clicked right through it. And you're like, yep. Oh, but uh, notes. Thank you. It's like the, so, it's like the pig in toy story where he's flipping through the channels. That's just, that's the way your instructor yeah. is in the ground school. And they're going through the mandatory slides. You go, okay, the slide, the slide, the slide, the slide. Okay. Any questions? Okay. Let's move on. And the slide and the slide. <laughs> A hundred percent. I mean, you, at the end of the day, you also got to remember that they're, they're trying to get through these courses and they do these courses starting Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays every week. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. And I, I liked our instructor to a certain point, but he would go off on rabbit holes. So people would refrain from asking him questions uh -huh. because he would spend 30 minutes down a rabbit hole that didn't need to be spent because someone asked him a question and he would start going off and going off and going off. Yeah. So, but not, not discrediting the guy at all. He, he was very knowledgeable and had super a good amount of time in it. Um, he was a retired American guy. Um, seven, three, Mad Dog, I forget what else he flew. He was with uh, Envoy, or uh, not Envoy, um, Sandpiper, when Sandpiper was Sandpiper. Uh, Wings West, uh, National no, no, no. Eagle. Uh, well, yeah. American he was, Eagle. He was, he was Eagle and Eagle before it was Eagle. Oh, okay. So he was original American Eagle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah he got, he's American got time Eagle, in the ATR. Back in the 90s, American Eagle... Uh, was created when AMR, which was the parent company of American Airlines, they started buying all of these commuters that they were contracting out to do a lot of their domestic feed from essential air service airports to the hubs mm -hmm. to feed the hubs the passengers that they were using for then connect through other hubs. So these commuter airlines were like making a lot of money because they were growing and, you know, these small populations were growing more and more, more and more people were flying. So instead of giving them out all this contract work, they just bought them up and they created mm -hmm. one regional airline. And at the time, regional airline was not a thing. It was commuters what were mm -hmm. then, you know, the nicknames were puddle jumpers, right? They were all yep. always turboprops and whatnot. But now these commuter airlines were buying bigger and better airplanes and even some turbine-powered <clears throat> aircraft. And so they bought them up and they combined Wings West, Nashville Eagle, and a, a bunch of others. I, I'll have to look them up. But um, they combined them and they made one regional airline that was wholly owned named American Eagle. And mm -hmm. a lot of pilots that 
have since retired from the main line over there at American, started their roots flying for a commuter that was later merged into a regional airline that was later then gave them the experience in order to go to apply for and go to a main line because there was no flow through at the time. So, yeah. Interesting yeah. stuff. No, th- so you're, you're looking at the, I, I just pulled it up off of uh, Wikipedia, the regional wholly owned carriers for it that merged to create what would be uh, Eagle mm-hmm. was executive flagship Simmons and wings West. Simmons. Okay. Yeah. And then they would later purchase uh Metro uh, to include in all that. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, he was, uh, I believe he was Metro. Cause I remember hearing that he was Metro and then they obviously merged in with Eagle. Um, so he got, he was there for like 15 or 17 years before, uh-huh. uh, before flowing when there wasn't a thing called the flow yeah. into American uh, and uh, end up retiring from American. So, wow. So, so super, super knowledgeable. Yeah. Super experienced, uh, person, uh, leading the class. That's, that's a, that's always fantastic to hear. Um, so many of these classes, like I remember having classes back in the day where the instructor was the youngest person in the class and they were <laughs> teaching the ground school because, you know, they, they studied it at whatever university they went to and they're doing this while they're building time so that they can get hired on to a regional airline. So they weren't even a qualified regional pilot, but they were teaching the ground school or the systems portion, at least of the ground schools, teaching you how the, you know, the hydraulic system works for that particular aircraft. Um, So when you have someone that has real life experience, not to take away from the lesson that um, inexperienced person may give because they'll know that system like the back of their hand. And that's really all that needs to be conveyed there. But when you have someone that has a life experience, they bring just that little added touch to where they can go down a rabbit hole and get into the fine detail or get into the weeds about a particular system. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that knowledge base is, is so valuable to have and, and such a pleasure to have that experience. Now on day one, you said you had high altitude stalls and a coffin corner and, and all this stuff. And, and uh, what was like day two and day three like? Uh, so day two was physiology for flight and fitness for duty operations, uh, kind of going into the kind of the basic stuff that you get into, you know, in private pilot stuff, but obviously t- touching more on crew rest requirements and what crew rest requirements are and, you know, how, you know, how soon you can touch a trip after being on rest and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. Uh, communications, which I mean, that, that to me communications and checklist philosophy kind of is like kind of stuff that you're imprinting into, you know, young private pilots in, in how you're teaching them, but it's expounded upon more into this world. Cause you know, communications don't necessarily include regular radio voice uh, in the airline worlds, right? Like you got your, you know, your a cars that, you know, you can get direct text messages basically from your dispatcher, uh-huh. or you can have the, what is it? The pre-departure clearance where it's all digital and you just hit the print button and it prints out for you. So you don't have to talk to a controller. Yeah. Um, or like if you're at a super busy airport, like Chicago, uh, you get put into, what is it? A ground queue or, uh, I forget what it is, metering. what they called it. But ground metering. Yeah. Ground, ground metering, right. Mm-hmm. Where you call them when you're basically ready to taxi and they say, cool. 
let's have you park over here and wait for 20 minutes while we get you a ground taxi clearance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Busy airports and some, some airports, like you mentioned, uh, Chicago, uh, is, is prime example. Their ground metering is on pretty much all day late at night. They, they turn it off. But, uh, so when you're in the alley and you, you've got, you know, you're at the airplane, they're ready to close the door. You're talking to the rampers and you have to get clearance for your pushback. So you contact ramp control, which is either a company or your own company, depending. Um, and you ask for permission for pushback and start. And they'll tell you clear to push tail west, clear to push to spot five, clear to push to the T, clear to push to the X, whatever. And so then you relay that to your ground controller. And that's how you um, get clearance to get pushed back in the alley. You start up the engines, the tug driver disconnects the tow bar from the aircraft the wing walkers make sure there's clearance they make they show you the pin the the gear nose gear pin that the bypass switch has been reinstalled so now you have nose post steering because they usually disconnect that for their safety and then once all that's done you got at least one engine running you run through your after start flow or your checklist depending on the carrier you work for then you're going to contact ramp control again we do this at Los Angeles every time. When you contact the ramp controller, you then say, okay, we're, we are uh, ready to taxi. And they'll tell you, okay, contact ground metering or ground or taxi up to the top of the alley and then contact ground. Uh, in Phoenix, you just contact the north ground or the south ground, depending on where you're parked. In Chicago, you contact metering when you're number one. And the metering controller, you tell them who you is, where you at, what you want. That's what you tell them, right? So you tell them who you are, where you are, what alley you're in, what line you're on, north line, south line, whatever, and the information that you have, ADA's information. We have information Zulu, mm -hmm. right? They'll tell you, all right, con or monitor ground. So now mm -hmm. you have it already in your radio control panel, and you just flip that toggle switch, and so now that becomes active. Now, in Chicago, you wait for them to call you. You don't call them. In yep. Dallas, it's the same thing. There is no ground mm -hmm. metering in Dallas unless there's bad weather, and that will be on the ATIS for taxi contact metering. But most of the time, it's just contact ground. So you're number one at the top of the alley. They give you a spot. You're on spot 124, and you don't call them. They call you, and they'll just say spot 124. And you heard that, and you know you're on spot 124, so you'll say Legacy 145 with information Zulu ready to taxi. And they'll tell you bridge route, you know, whatever, 25 left, whatever. I don't know. Um, so, yeah. And that's something we learned, too, is uh, uh, like pre-programmed taxi routes where you talk about bridge route or they have them at different airports where they basically tell you your clearance and say you are following this to the T. It would be basically for the people who don't really understand it. It's it's a ground based version of an arrival or or, or a departure, yeah. a, a sit or a star. It literally tells you follow this, follow this, follow this, follow this. Brings you to X runway, and once you're at X runway lineup, then you get in the queue with tower and wait for your turn to leave. Yeah, and if you're using an electronic flight bag or an EFB, then you're if you're whatever program you're carrier is using in our case we use a, the jeppesen app so in the jeppesen app and they tell you bridge route and you're like uh this is my first time here what captain do you know the bridge route and they're like well 
Uh, I think so, but look it up. Where do you find it? Sometimes it's under the taxi tab, and it's maybe instead of a 10-9, maybe it's a 10-9 Charlie or a 10-9 Delta or a 10-11 or whatever they designate it. And it's in the actual FAA taxi diagram accoutrement of charts, right? Sometimes it's not there. So where do you find it? And in those cases that it's not under the taxi tab, it'll be under the operations tab. And there'll be an operations tab. Those are the company-defined pages. That talks mm-hmm. all about, you know, your entries, your gates, your frequencies for, for your operations, the, the, everything from security codes to get access to the ramp to do a walk around to, you know, after hours phone numbers in case you need to contact someone in the ticket counter. It's all there in your operations tab. Well, sometimes those taxi routes that the airport's using, that's where you're going to find them. So you got to know where to look. And if you don't know, and they tell you to do something in like a, a, a coded route, like you said, an arrival, and they expect you to do that. 100%. And if you're not doing that, then you have, you know, some kind of runway incursion. Then you can end up nose to nose with a 747. <laughs> end up nose to nose and having to copy down some phone number that you don't need to copy down. Oh, God, day. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, I actually, <laughs> I actually have a funny story with batteries. So I, I have a travel Roku that uh, we, so we used to have a bunch of TVs in our house and uh, well, we used to, we still have a bunch of TVs in our house. Uh, but one of the TVs went away because my kid didn't want to play on a TV. He wanted to play his Xbox on a monitor. So whatever, he plays on a monitor now, not a TV, which, okay. Um, so when his TV went away, his Roku went away with it because he, you know, plays on his Xbox. His Xbox can do everything that the Roku does. Right. So that became our our travel Roku. So it comes with us whenever we go. Like if I'm on like a week here, you know, yeah, uh, I have I can watch my Netflix, Hulu, all that stuff. Well, when I got to the hotel room, my batteries were dead. Uh, and I don't mean dead; they were leaking dead. Oh, yeah, because you had yeah, yeah. Got to always yeah, remove the battery. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I realize that now. So when I <laughs> when I come home, I'm going to take the batteries out, you know, set yeah. them in the bag, but, you know, not in the remote. Um, yeah. But I got to the hotel room. And I was like, shit, like, I, I don't have, it, it was late. So I was like, shit, I don't have batteries. Oh, good. Triple A's are in the remote in the hotel room. Cool. So I took them out and <laughs> threw them in there and forgot my, the Roku's. Well, <laughs> no, I didn't forget. Put the old batteries in the, <laughs> in the hotel room. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just, I threw them away because they were leaking and gross. Oh. And so I completely just left them and I was going to leave the hotel and go like, okay, well, you know, I know they have batteries. It's a hotel. I'm sure they do. Right. Uh, Cause my Roku has power and volume on it. So I don't need to, to yeah. turn on and off the TV. Right. Uh, I've got that on my Roku. Cool. So I leave and I, I'm thinking nothing of it. Forget all about it. Right. And, uh, my friend who's in the class with me, who's staying here, he's a, a Florida based guy. When we got our hotel rooms all kind of rebooked because we're staying here, he's now in my old room. And he's like, the TV <laughs> and, doesn't work. Yeah, no, he sends a video just because he was pissed off because he got, he was at the airport for like four oh. or five hours and tried two or three different flights and they all got canceled on him. So he's pissed off. He comes back to the hotel room and he's, he, uh, he was like, man, like, 
I was just so pissed. I never watched TV and I wanted to watch TV that day. And, uh, you know, and he sends a video and uh, I'm going to see if you can see it. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so he, he's just so pissed about it. And he's just like, he said, his response to that was, uh, I, uh, what did he say? I'm so over Texas or something like that. He goes, okay, it's official. Texas sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I started, I said, what room are you in? I said, are you in 423? Because I may or may not have taken those batteries from my <laughs> I heard stories. We used to have this captain that uh, when, you know, CF, was it CFL or yes, uh, compact fluorescent lighting, CFLs, were a big oh, yeah, thing yeah, before yeah, LED yeah. bulbs. They had, you know, they said, oh, get rid of your incandescent bulbs and use CFLs. You know, they're so much better, uh, low, low energy usage and better for the environment. Not to mention the mercury that's in every single one of those. But anyway, so yeah, hey, so this captain good. would like like bring his incandescent bulbs from home in his kit bag and switch them out <laughs> when he got to a hotel that had the fancy. I've heard like, of what? I've she heard of bas- people doing that. Bastard, <laughs> take the batteries out of the remote for their Bose headset. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't intentional that I was doing it. I just forgot, and you know out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> and then by the time he sent that, I was like, oh shit, I did take those batteries. So that is my room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, dude. So I actually, and I actually saw him tonight uh, down in the lobby and he was, uh, he, he was getting batteries for his TV remote. It just was like, man, what an asshole for people who take those batteries just like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. All right pilots so can't yeah oh yeah no we're we're cheap asses so so day two was was very successful talk about day three what was uh, the last day of ground like Uh, no no there's one more day oh it's four days there's two yeah four days ground so day three was mel cdls uh actually that was kind of good because i've talked about mels obviously in the private pilot world but (laughs) my my phrase to those is we don't use those that's big airline people so Mm -hmm. you know now I'm becoming big airline people. So now I got to know what those are and yeah. how they work. And, you know, not just of like the, the, the deferment times of, you know, like a, a level A, a level B, a level C, or is it? Yeah. Those right. Uh-huh. The ABCs and D's. Category okay. A, I didn't know if they were three yeah, days. Yeah. Category B is like 10 days. No, no, no. Category, category, category A is specified by maintenance. However long maintenance specifies category B is three days. Category oh, see, C is 10 days. And I forget what category D was. At this That's point. A, that can number. be a time <laughs> interval up to like 30 or 69 days, something like that. Oh, no, no. Category D was 180 days. And he goes, you'll rarely see 180 days. Yeah, you won't see the, so you never yeah. see those, you know, and then when we do see them, it's always the same, you know, category B or category C. It's one of those. And if it's category A, it's, uh, it's hours like uh, 250 cycles or 250 hours or hobs or whatever. They don't call them hobs in the airline world. They call them cycles. So, yeah. but, but you have no way on the flight deck, you have absolutely no way to tell what that is. You have to either use an app that we do have access to, to kind of figure out what that tail number is, what, what their hours uh, on the airframe or hours on the engine or whatever is or you have to contact SOC that'll put you through to MOC. So system operation control will then, you know, forward you to maintenance operation control. And then you can say, hey, I'm on this airplane. This was written up a long time ago. It said uh, after 10 cycles, it needs to be repaired. How many cycles? I, I don't have any idea. Is it, are we good? Are we legit? And that would be an okay phone call to make. 
Mm-hmm. But and that's the thing is you have to make that phone call or you have to look and see like, hey, it's been, you know, three days. Is it is am I hitting my three day mark at this flight? Because everything's based off of Zulu time. So yeah. if you don't if you don't you know hit your mark, you can actually be illegal to fly with a, a maintenance item that should be deferred or, or should be looked at. Yeah, Rob uh, talked about that a couple shows ago when he was discussing how they were delayed and they were going to return into Dallas. Uh, late to the point where if that plane landed after midnight, it would technically have been illegal because it was on their last calendar day for that open write-up. Mm-hmm. And if they did not land by midnight, there are no extensions to these write-ups. So nope. they would have they would have landed after midnight and therefore been illegal by so many minutes. So they ran the risk of canceling the flight. And fortunately for him, they were able to get out at a decent time and they were able to make it back in DFW and have legality to do it. Yeah. And that, and that's actually something that's not to be messed around with. Like that can actually throw you, throw your career into the, the, the hot water there. Well, at like, minimum, it, you know, they'll question, you know, did you, were you aware of this? What were the, what were the circumstances that led you to accept an aircraft that was going to go illegal? Did you not notice it? Um, you know, most of the time, if something like that happens, You'll get like a come into the chief pilot's office, bring your union representation, and let's talk about this. And if you know it was an honest mistake, and it, if it was something that could have easily been overlooked, then they kind of give you a slap on the wrist. They put something in your P file saying, you know, hey, this we talked to you on this date because of this incident, and then that stays in your file for like a year. And then if nothing else happens, they throw it away. Um, or like you said, you know, you take an airplane that was unsafe. Uh, due to negligence that you didn't do your job, you didn't do, you didn't follow your standard operating procedures or your SOPs, and mm-hmm. that's what led to the unsafe act. And therefore, yeah, you could you could run the risk of jeopardizing your license. The FAA might have judgment in the worst case scenario where they take every single license away from you, and now you have to mm-hmm. go start from the beginning. Yep, and we actually talked about some of that stuff of like the. Uh the the alcohol stuff you know with taking away stuff like that alcohol is no joke in the airline world or in flying world in general but in the airline world like you lose everything and there is nothing you can do once it's lost other than start from scratch and build it back up yeah and i've heard of a few pilots that have done that and it takes years and Mm -hmm. especially now a lot of money well, I was going to say, if you, if you look at it in today's standards, if like, say, for whatever reason, you lose your license for that, right? And I'm using you, you've got somewhere in the probably neighborhood 15,000 hours as a private or as a pilot, right? So I think I just, I did 12,000 back in November. So okay. not quite, so, but close. But a lot. Reason, reasonable <laughs> amount of time, right? You know, at your point, you're not even counting hours anymore. You're just counting years, right? <laughs> I still count my so, hours. I still have my logbook. Okay, okay. I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Paper logbook. Oh, ooh. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. I'm old school. But man. when they talked, when they talked about that, like let's say you, and I'm going to use you as an example, so don't take this in any wrong way. Say you get in trouble for alcohol and you lose your license, right? You have to start all the way back over from pilot pilot. That's yeah, ridiculously. I, I would say something like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting these in, in influences here, but you know, I just want to say, yeah. yeah, no, it's, we're, we're not, we're not, we're, we're, 
we're enjoying alcoholic beverages away from work. No, no flags involved. I don't want to get us both in trouble. The FAA is listening. Hi, FAA. Um, but you know, you start over from scratch, right? So that means right. you have to get at least 40 hours to become a private pilot, at least another 40 hours to become an instrument pilot, another 250 hours to become a commercial. Yeah. And, you I, mean, know. I think from what I've heard, you know, your, your experience does count. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to go through whatever the FAA deems or the judge would deem your program. So you lose it. And now you have to go and state your case to, to re-get it. And they'll go, okay, well, um, we want you to go through this many hours and complete all of these exams over again. Basically, it's like a, a, a financial punishment to your crime, right? Mm-hmm. And it has to be a crime. There has to be a federal crime committed in order to have the FAA make this kind of action towards someone. Yes, I've heard it happening due to alcohol. Um, where they've lost everything and they were so passionate about flying instead of changing careers, they did take the time to do it. Now, I don't think you have to do all the minimum hours the way, I mean, you might, but in the case I heard, you know, it was like a couple hundred hours of instruction. And as soon as the instructor says, okay, because your time you have is the time you have. They don't take that away from you. Yeah. So, so if they go, okay, well, if you do 20 hours, we'll get you your private and you know, another 20 hours, we'll get you your instrument. And if that's what the judge approves, approves, then, then I think you're okay in those circumstances. But again, these are very unique circumstances. They're very rare. They're like 0.0001% of all judgments towards pilots um, where they have to go through a program all over again from scratch. But yeah, yeah. very serious. Um, and there, yes, we've had shows where we talk about the hymns program we talk about mm-hmm. addiction and pilots because pilots are people and you know people have addictions and it's a disease and and yes there are many pilots um that we've interviewed here even on the show that have gone through the program and are flying successful careers even to this day no and i i i i'm a, a big advocate of the hymns program um i i think it's a wonderful thing uh, I, we learned a lot about it in, in the, the, the program or in the, the course that we went through uh-huh. and it just, it, it, it's there for people who need it. Right. Because at, at the end of the day, addiction is a disease, no different than cancer or Lyme disease or anything like that. Right. It's, right. it's a disease of the brain. Right. And, and it's something that you can't control. Um, so enough of the sadness, right. We'll go back on to some good stuff here. Um, MEL, CDLs, ground ops, turbine engine overviews, uh, airplane performance, uh, transport category airplane performance, not just airplane performance, but transport category performance. Okay. Uh, talking about like swept wings and the way that wings are designed and all that stuff. Um, how that all plays into it, you know, especially getting up into the high speed regimes. Do they um, stress how important it is to not do a forward slip on approach when you think you're high on a swept wing aircraft? Actually, yes. They, yes they <laughs> yeah, <did>. I know. <laughs> they 100% did. And, and, and they've got these wonderful things in this airplane called spoilers and speed brakes that just like, wow, it works. Mm-hmm. I, I learned that in the sim. Those, now, it's not, those things. The thing about speed brakes is this. I mean, and I've learned this through time and trial and error um, and, and flying with captains that have you know, given me advice throughout the years. Speed brakes do an okay job to increase the drag on the wing and slow you down or, 
you know, bring in the ability for you to get that next stage of spoilers or flaps or slow the aircraft down to a safe speed to, to perform some kind of maneuver or slowdown or descent or whatever. However, the best thing I ever heard was an air traffic controller was telling a captain, can you expedite your descent? The captain said, sure. And so he started down. And then the controller a little while later said, um, I asked you to expedite your descent. Are you doing the best you can? And the captain said, yes, we're giving you the best we can. And he's, and the controller says, well, what about those, uh, those speed brakes? Are you using those? <laughs> Cause he wasn't descending very fast. And the, and the captain said, that's for when I make a mistake, not when you make a mistake. <laughs> now the reason the captain <laughs> had this little, you know, quick witted response was when you do use a spoiler in a transport category aircraft, everybody in the back knows. I mean, oh, yeah. everything after the wing is just vibrating, shaking, you know, the, the, the flight attendant, all the drinks are, you know, vibrating back there. Um, it, it can be quite uncomfortable. Now, if it's something that's absolutely necessary to slow down, uh, it's a great technique. It's a great tool um, to keep you out of trouble. Definitely for sure. Uh, but I try not to use it as much as possible. And if I do use it, sometimes if the aircraft you're in allows for it, I only use half mm -hmm. just because when you go to full, uh, especially in the Airbus, it, it shakes the fuselage well no, enough I, and it's loud. It, and... That is something that I, I learned. It, it does definitely, you do feel it. You definitely do feel it. And obviously I don't feel it in the real thing because I've been in the real thing, but you do feel it in the sim. I mean, it's the airplane without being the airplane. So uh, I, I definitely got exposed to it. And we were, one of the things that we used it on was basically kind of like a high and fast approach type thing. And they told us to use the speed brakes to show us how they worked. Right. Good. It's a great demonstration, so, especially in the sim. Oh yeah. And then, and even coupling with that automation, man. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, you guys have it so good in the airlines with your, your navigational systems and how well that it works and how accurate it is in comparison to the GA world. The GA world, yes, we do have GPS-based stuff and we are using, you know, that, but the it almost seems that you guys are using more and more LNAV, VNAV-based stuff mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the the ground-based facilities where which we are using you know right the only time that i think that you guys actually ever do use the ground-based facilities is when you program in the ils approach into whatever airport that you're going into and it loads it through your gps and sets everything up that way yeah the f the, we'll call the fms the flight management system so the flight yeah. management system controls your your navigation, your, your flight directors. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. what happens is when we come in to shoot an ILS approach, um, we'll load that into the box or the FMS system. Um, it, it uses both the GPS coordinate information and the ground base frequency localizer glide slope information, and it overlays it. And then when you arm an approach and activate it, it will fly your flight management GPS-backed route up until the point where it captures the localizer, then it'll fly the localizer. So it's mm -hmm. using that ground-based frequency. 
it, it's so advanced that if the frequency fails, it'll even tell you. It'll, it'll, mm -hmm. it'll have a flag on your PFD telling you that, hey, you've lost the localizer. Um, and just the other day on my last trip, which was about a week and a half ago, we were coming into Dallas, actually, on the last day on a turn. We were supposed to do land at Dallas, swap airplanes, and then back to Ontario and be done. And uh, we didn't read the ATIS all the way through. It's something that is called complacency. I'm sure you've heard of it. Mm. So we, oh, re we no, read the ATIS. Oh, never. Yeah, you never heard of that? So we read the no, ATIS. Never. We got, of course, you know, the wind, the temperature, the, the barometric pressure, the ATIS information. And we looked, you know, read a little bit further which runways were being used. And then there's, you know, if you have anybody has printed out a METAR or an ATIS, in Dallas, it's like you know a page of, of writing. So we kind of stopped and we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, they're using uh, the ILS, whatever, and visuals. I said the visuals uh, to to one seven center, I think it was, or once, or actually it was one eight right. Visuals to one eight right. So I'm like, okay, we're visual one eight right. I briefed it, backed up by the ILS one eight right, and I'm all you know confident. And Captain's like, right, great. Do a great job. So the autopilot's on. I program it. I arm the approach. And I can see the airport. And they gave us a heading. We're cleared the visual. Okay. And I can see the airport. And just, it's like something's not displayed correctly. There's like a little green, what we call a bar or brick, that is supposed to show up. And then just like an ILS, it should come over. And as soon as it's centered on your PFD, it should capture the localizer the flight director should then mirror this, this green bar and you should fly this course to turn and fly inbound. I'm like, where's the green bar? I should have some kind of deflection by now. And the airplane's still moving along, trucking on about a 45 to final. And I go, this is not right. So I kick off the autopilot. By the time I react, which was a nice smooth reaction to get the airplane Basically, on a final, we had gone through what would have been the localizer a little bit. The captain's like, yeah, it's, it didn't capture it. I wonder what's going on. So then, like, all the wheels start spinning really fast in my head. And I'm like, oh, crap. I, you know, I hope there's not an airplane next to us. Let's, let's get back on course quickly. So, you know, we didn't vary off enough to anyone to even notice. The controller didn't know. Nobody noticed, really. But I noticed. I know that we were kind of not lining up. I got us back on course, lined up back, and then he, the captain goes, mine didn't capture it either. Did you, did we arm the approach? What, what's going on? So all our wheels are spinning at a critical phase of flight. And granted, we were still like 10 miles out, you know, it wasn't, a, wasn't like we were close to the ground or anything. And so I got it all centered up and then I look over on the center pedestal and I see that the printout from the ATIS and I just, my eyes just kind of go to it real quick. And I see down at the bottom, it says, localizer glide slope, one hit right, OTS. <laughs> Read the entire ATIS. <laughs> and, and my favorite thing, which they always kind of put at the bottom, wind shear advisories are in effect. Yeah. Which then, you know, bodes the question, did you brief the escape procedure that is required <laughs> in our standard operating procedures on your briefing of the approach, uh, what to do in case you get a wind shear, wind shear, close to the ground, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, read the whole ATIS folks. <laughs> Don't get complacent. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do what I did. <laughs> you know, granted, uh, no, uh, no airplanes or pilots were harmed in this <laughs> example. Yeah, but, no. Uh, 
yeah, it could have been ugly. And if I would have just sat there going, oh, what's it doing? Scratch my head. You know, children of the magenta line are real. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and that goes into what we talked about in day four. One of the topics was uh, the voluntary safety programs. Did you guys at least ASAP your uh, thing there just to CYA? No? Okay. No, we didn't ASAP it because I caught it in such a manner where we did not interfere with the safety zone of the, of the left runway. Um, okay. we didn't, we didn't get into that approach. That was not a runway in use for landing anyway. So yeah. it, it was kind of a, a moot point. I just noticed because I had you know, done it thousands of times, I just noticed that, Hey, that I noticed it before. Like I noticed it at the point where it was supposed to start having an indication of a localizer and it didn't. And I thought it should be, it should be at least a half a deflection by now. And so I kicked off the autopilot and hand flew the airplane. Fine. Yes. We kind of went a little bit past the center where normally you, it would, it would start the turn a little early so that when it rolls out, you're right on localizer center. So yeah, we went past it a little bit and came right back, but we were far enough from the airport and away from any traffic that it really was a non-event and I, I caught it. It was one of those threat and error management examples, the TEM, right? The Swiss cheese effect. So a couple things got through the Swiss cheese, right? Through the holes. One, I mm -hmm. didn't notice the ATIS I, and I didn't brief it that way. Um, the second, the captain who was pilot monitoring didn't notice the ATIS, didn't catch me not saying, hey, the localizer glide slope's not working um, because we could have loaded a a GPS for that runway as a backup because over at, at legacy, we always want a ground based or a backup to a visual approach. We're, we're not allowed to just shoot visual approaches. If there is some kind of approach published that's working, we should be using that as a backup um, to heighten safety and situational awareness. And so I missed all that, but the fact that that little indicator a green bar that should appear at the bottom of the PFD somewhere when you're within about half a mile from your course, it should appear that far out. And it didn't. And I noticed it and it got me thinking. And so when I looked at the runway visually and saw it and thought, huh, the airplane's not going to intercept. Before we crossed the center line, I had shut off the autopilot and just lowest level automation back to basics. Yep. Cessna 172, just bank the airplane, get it back on course. And that's what happened. It was a non-event. So I didn't ace that. Mm -hmm. Now, if I would have not noticed it until we went like well, well past the localizer and, you know, then we, ATC said, Hey, uh, where are you going? Then yes, <laughs> I would have absolutely ASAPed it. It takes about five minutes. The software is very intelligent. You just plug in your flight number. It knows who you're flying with. It, I mean, all you have to do is go, I messed up. My bad. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's not that simple, but, but it really doesn't take very long. And it's no harm, no foul. And that's, and that's one of the things that we learned with, on day four was about CRM, TEM, you know, all the, the Swiss cheese model, how it's designed and safety programs. And if you do get to do something in a, a not in a, a malicious or uh, uh, you do it involuntarily, right? Like you accidentally, you yeah. know, bust through final, you can, you submit this report so that you can be like, Hey, look, 
I know I messed up or I know we messed up. Like, this is what happened. This is the, you know, the, the, the cause of it. And this is what we're going to do to fix it. And they go, cool. Don't do it again. Right. Intentional non-compliance, um, I think is what the FAA says that ASAP will not protect you from intentional non-compliance. Yeah. Intentional non-compliance and anything with drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Which is in their <laughs> eyes intentional. Yeah. Um, and then we also learned about Foqua. Oh, Foqua. Oh, Foqua. Oh, those it's, airplanes, uh, man. They'll rat on you. <laughs> Freaking oh, rat. God, yeah. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they do. They do snitch on you. It's, but it takes some time for them to kind of like process what happened on the fly. And then they give you this call and then say, hey, uh, First Officer Tony, we noticed that on your flight that uh, you guys uh, decided to uh, fly a little too fast. And uh, you guys did this. And uh, uh, and you go, okay, cool. Well, we're going to submit an ASAP report about it. And uh, thank you for your time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been called a few times, especially at the beginning of my career at Legacy Airlines. Uh, the the Foqua called me and were like, yeah, hey, Tony, uh, two weeks ago, you flew a flight in the Phoenix. Can you tell me about that? Like, can you be more specific? And like, yeah, well, uh, according to flights. the data, um, the airplane got very slow and went into Togalock. Oh, yeah. Oh, that flight. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Can you tell me what happened? Do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I totally told him what happened. I was like, it was my bad. I did file an ASAP on that one because we both like, we, they swapped runways to the last second in Phoenix. They're like, hey, do you want uh, runway 27? I said, like, yeah, sure. And like, are right, you cleared? So, you know, lowest level automation, you know, autopilot off, uh, captain's down here, da, da, da. forgot to turn off the flight directors. You have auto throttles or auto thrust levers. Yeah, you you always go autopilot off, flight director off. Otherwise, what's it gonna do? It's gonna L on you. It's well, it could give you flight idle, which is what it did. Yeah. Because I'm not touching the thrust levers, it's supposed to be all automatic. But yeah. the airplane, the airplane why you always safety margins worked and I'll, and as soon as it happened, I was like, oh crap. And I knew what I did and I, you know, flew the airplane by hand and it was fine. But we got Didn't they tell enough. you click, 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 click? Yeah, click, 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 click. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> but you know, when you're end of a day, you've been flying for eight or nine hours and you, all you want to do is see the back of your eyelids, the, some hotel room somewhere. Uh, yeah, sometimes you make dumb mistakes. And I know because I've made them all. <laughs> you, know what, you know what else I also learned throughout this class? Never, ever, ever tell the airplane it's the go-home leg. No, because that's Murphy's law. Oh yeah, no, you don't. You don't mention go home leg. Nope. You don't. You don't say anything about nope. it. The last one, we're getting ready to go home. Nope. Well, I'm I'm ready to be in my bed tonight. No, nope. no, none of that. None of that. Nope. And I love it when the captain goes, "Hey, if we get there ten minutes early, I can make my commute flight." And you go, "Why'd nope. you say that? Why? Yeah, no, why would you no, do that no, to me?" You're, you're you're not making your 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 connection flight and then all because of a sudden now you're going to be delayed on the ground. Ding, Captain, we got a broken seat back here. Ding. Um, we overfueled your aircraft by four thousand pounds. Ding. Oh, um, this screen just went blank. We got to call maintenance. Ding. Oh, yours a ground stop. <laughs> like, you see what you did? What did you do? <laughs> That's like the the the, the little uh, the living the dream Lego. It's exactly right. That guy's a genius. <laughs> Captain, uh, the, the tray table on seat 22B doesn't work. What do you mean it doesn't work? I mean, here it is. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
exactly. No. So, so you learned a lot. Um, you get four days of ground school. You learned an, yeah. an exceptional amount of not just facts and figures to pass a, a test, but you learned a lot about the industry. This is extremely mm-hmm. valuable stuff. No, it really is. And, and how I, much I did like you pay I for this? Learn. Zero. Wait a minute. What? Tell me about this. Zero. Oh, so, so the wonderful company of Sandpiper, due to the uh, mass amount of hiring that needs to be done industry-wide, um, you either, there's either two choices to, to do this course. One, you pay for it out of pocket on your own and you go through it. It's like five or six grand to, to go through it. I don't know the actual cost because Sandpiper picked up the bill for me. Or you go to a regional airline like the the guys at our SkyWest class uh, that were all in there with us, uh, or the the three Sandpiper guys, uh, me, Chris Garvey, and uh, Philip Greeley or Philip Gilly. I think I said his name right. Philip Gilly. Uh, he's my sim partner. And I don't even know his last name. Um, that we're uh, we're all going to Sandpiper together, and Sandpiper's picking up the tab for us um, because it's it's a part of the the culture. It's that's what happens now is because they want you to be a part of their airline. Every airline right now, whether it's uh, SkyWest, Envoy, Piedmont, PSA, Mesa, uh, Republic, Spirit, Frontier. I mean, there's all those airlines in in all these classes. You look at the doors, you see all of them. Yeah, they're picking up the tabs for these people because it's. It needs to be done. It is a requirement to get your ATP. Yeah. In order to get your ATP, you have to go through this course. Well, in order to go through this course, a company has to pick it up for you. Yeah, and let's say they pick it up. It's actually quite uh, in just quite genius marketing because now they've paid for this course. They've given you the conditional letter. You've interviewed there. You were given the conditional letter of employment. Mm-hmm. So they want you there. They don't want you send meeting applications to other regionals and then going, Oh, well, I like them better. So I'm going to go there. They've already, they've taken the time to interview you and they've given you the conditional letter by getting you into this course as quickly as possible. They now have you at least on the hook because mm-hmm. you've taken the course and now you go, you know what? Over at gold standard airline, they're offering me a job flying a bigger airplane. I'm going to go there. Now they're going to send you a bill. And that, that I had to sign a, uh, uh, I want to call it an NDA, right? A non-disclosure agreement, but it's not. It's a, I had to sign a contract basically saying that, like, I will go through this course and be uh, to the to the airline for, I think it's a year. Yeah. Otherwise, I pay back the course fees, yeah. which. Yeah, agreement okay. in principle, I think, an AIP. Agreement in principle would say, okay, uh, you have to go through, make it through the Sandpiper training and be on the line through probation through your first year. And once you've reached your second year of employment, now if you leave for any reason, you won't be on the hook. And I think if you stay there six months and decide uh, an opportunity comes up, I think it's a prorated amount that you pay Mm -hmm. back. I don't remember the exact verbiage in the contract, but it's not like you're on the hook for the whole thing. But yeah, absolutely. They now have your loyalty financially. Yep. They got me for a year for that. And then I think it's uh, three years for the 15 grand they're throwing at me. Wait, what? Yep. So they're, they're, they're helping you with uh, flight training expenses and, and time building? Uh, no, this is a 15 grand that they're throwing at me to come join their company. So this is a signing Ten- bonus. Yes, this is a this is 100% a signing bonus. Okay, so you're getting a signing bonus to go and work at Sandpiper mm-hmm. for your first year and if you leave within 3 
they're gonna I'm on the hook for fifteen grand. Fifteen grand. So they're now again, they're 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 building loyalty through financial penalty. In a way, though, if you think about it, right, <laughs> I, I, I'm not denying it. They are. But at the same time, they're trying to, I wouldn't say sink their claws into you, but they're trying to to grab you before gold standard or before, you know, yeah. the the any other airline does because everybody's hurting. And if gold standard picks me up, which they have, which I do have to email them at this point to, to say thanks, but no thanks. Um, because everything's all set in motion for me to come back out here on the 10th, um, which I'll, I'll get to in a, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got to email gold standard to say, thanks, but no thanks because both gold standard and, uh, sandpiper have offered me jobs. Yeah. And obviously I, I want to, to kind of stay with sandpiper because, you know, we talked about this in the last episode to be able to flow into legacy and, yeah. and be a legacy legacy. Right. Yeah, right. So, um, uh, which to me isn't a bad thing. Like, okay, so 15 grand for three years. That's three years I have to stay at, at Sandpiper and then I can go look elsewhere. Okay, which by that time I'll probably be... by those three years, you'll blink an eye and be like, oh my God, where do they go? Yeah. Oh, I, trust me, I, I know. I'm I'm fully aware of it. And in three years, I could be sitting left seat at, at, at Sandpiper and um, Philip told me one of his friends just got a $35,000 captain retention bonus at Sandpiper. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there, you can see that the money's there. Yeah. Um, I know that some of the cadets, like I met a, a guy who just got hired uh, to Sandpiper. He is a UND. Uh, I don't know if he's graduated or not, but he, go, he attends uh, UND. Um, he's a cadet in the program. Just got hired at Sandpiper with 240 hours. And he will be, he will have seniority greater than me because he is uh, pen and inked basically two days ago. That's and my great. pen and ink won't be official until the 10th. Right. So that's the great thing about uh, being accepted into the cadet program over at Sandpiper. Um, because as a cadet, you are still building time and flight instructing and your seniority at the company is building to the point mm-hmm. where by the time the year or two go by where you have enough hours to take your ATP, uh, CTP, then by then a couple of years will go by, but then when you get on the line, your schedule is going to be fantastic because right? your your hire date goes back years versus the yep. other guy that's in class with you. Their hire date started yesterday. So yep. uh, that cadet program, if you can get in, we've, we've had the cadet um, mentors on the show. Kyle's a cadet mentor. Uh, we've had the cadet recruiters on the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just a fantastic organization and program it's not easy to get into it's nope. you're you are selected the chosen few yep. um and you really need to be lucky really um yep. you know have have that passion for aviation that's what they want to see more than anything mm-hmm. um it doesn't matter if you have zero hours or a thousand hours or more um they don't discriminate uh with age or, or anything uh nope. if you get it selected into the program all you have to do is keep it up. Yep. 
the the I know the couple caveats. The only reason why I never applied for it was because they uh they I didn't teach at one of their approved schools. Right. And that's the that's at the end of the day, that's what the hard part is. Yep. But um I gotta give a shout out to him, Keith Griffin out of uh UND. Kid's 21 years old and will be set for the rest of his life with an airline career. One interview and he will go from Sandpiper into Legacy and never have to worry about a thing. So I give, give good credit to that that program there. No, this this kid doesn't. This kid only has. You ready for this, Tony? Yeah. Three and a half hours of dual given. Oh. oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> Three wow. and a half hours of dual given, wow. and this kid is hired to basically be at Legacy Airlines at 21 years old. I'm telling you, three hours. The opportunities are there. You just have to kind of know where to put the direction of the the airplane, really, and just oh, let it go. No, that is a hundred. That is a hundred percent it. Um. Yeah. No. It's it. The, the getting's good for this industry right now. I mean, clearly you can hear a 21-year-old kid is getting hired out of college to be one interview and done, go from Sandpiper all the way into Legacy Airlines. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't it make you just a little bit jealous? A little bit? Are you kidding me? A lot of bit. <laughs> like, I wish these programs were in effect when I was going, when I was young and I were, you know, I should have pulled my head out of my ass when I was his age, yeah. but I didn't. Yeah, and, that's the uh, thing, you know. You know, but here he is set for the rest of his life you know wow. and that's why i said i got i gotta give a good give a good shout out to him because he uh he's uh he's gonna be set and he's gonna out outrank me uh in seniority just because his pen and ink date technically was two days ago yeah and my pen and ink date won't be until the 10th right right so well hey this is a, a very interesting time in the aviation oh, and yeah. airline community and seize the moment man get out there if you're listening to this show and you're thinking man i love you know listening to these guys talk about airplanes and the, you know great i mean I, I talked to four flight attendants in the past few months that are all working on their ratings one she mm -hmm. uh she i think was a commercial cfi and she's really? like yeah i'm gonna be at here someday and i'm gonna go to sandpiper and and she was just building her hours, getting ready to pull the trigger and working as a flight attendant to help pay for flight school and training. And, and I just was so impressed. I, I'm actually impressed with that, too. Um, I actually so funny you say that I actually met a guy in the van on the way back to uh, or from the airport to the hotel the first night we were here. And I didn't realize this was the Sandpiper interview hotel. I thought that, you know, or that legacy put people up here, right? I thought this was only Sandpiper. So yeah, um, that he was interviewing to become a flight attendant for legacy mm. and uh, right, which is cool, right? He's an older guy. He, he said he was in banking and he's, you know, now uh, he wants to kind of redo his career. He's always wanted to fly, but he figured because he's older at 48 years old that it's, he's too old to start, right? And he has his private and I just looked at him and even the van driver who is a commercially rated CFI pilot looks at him and goes, you're never too old. Like how old are you? 48. Wow. As long as you've got six years till retirement, the airlines will hire you. And he's like, really? He goes, yeah, they will hire you. And I went, yeah, they'll hire you. Look into doing some fast track uh, training, get you through and go into Sandpiper 
or you know, since you're going to be uh, looking at a uh, flight attendant at, at Legacy, mm. your foot will already be in the door. Why not try to use that to work into Legacy or Sandpiper to to be a pilot? Yeah. So, and it just it blew his mind that he at 48 years old he could still do it. Yeah, um, I mean, because one, of the, you know, we hire people all the time that have come over from another airline, and granted, okay, they have a lot more experience, but they're in their 40s, 50s, sometimes mm -hmm. even 60s. I mean, as long as you can do the job, you've got a good head on your shoulders. You're not a you're not an asshole at the end of the day, really. That's that's the main thing. Yeah. And you have the experience that you need. Absolutely. When the time when the when the timing is as good as it is now, really, it's it's there's so many opportunities up there. Well, and there's a guy that I met uh, who's in the ATP CTP class that started Wednesday, right? So we kind of we the 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 guys at the our class, the three of us, we would hang out down in the lobby and hang out and study because I uh, let's face it, I I'm not going to study if I'm in my room. I'm going to watch Netflix right. and I'm going to you know not do anything. So I'm going to force myself. I'm going to go downstairs and I'm going to start studying. So we just kind of made little study groups and would reinforce the questions from Shepherd Air with each other, like. If one knew it and the other didn't, you know, it would be like, okay, this is why. Or if we both didn't, then we'd read through the explanation and be like, oh, okay, cool. Let's let's talk through it so it cements in our head. Uh, well, in doing so, we met the next cadre of ATP CTP class members that were coming through and met the interviewees, right? Like I met the uh, Keith and uh, there's a guy I met uh, who got uh, uh, hired. He's a A10 driver uh, out of uh, Kansas City. Oh. Yeah, super, super awesome guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and super humble about it, too. Like, yeah. you know, everybody's sitting there like, oh, you're an A-10 pilot. Oh, that's so cool. And he's just like, yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's just the plane that I fly. Low you know? and slow. We're like, <laughs> with a low cannon. and slow, but yeah. That's the with, sound of freedom. With a, <laughs> with a plane that was designed around a gun and not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... But yeah, like doing that, like we met these people, right? And one of those guys that I met, he's 54 years old. And he is going through ATP CTP for Sandpiper Airlines and is going to be in orientation with me on the 10th. So tell me how you're too old to start this. And again, he's a second career guy. It's a mindset. It is, 100%. It really is. It's a mindset. So. Yeah, so let, the, let's get into... Let's get into, I'm so excited about this, hearing about the simulators. You got to sit oh, into yeah. three days of simulators and a different one every yeah. day. What, I mean, what, what was that for? I mean, how does sitting in a simulator prepare you to take an ATP written? So that doesn't necessarily prepare you to take a written, right? It just kind of gives you hands-on familiarization, right? But it's, it's to kind of like cement the stuff that you learned in class, right? Taking the, the, the theory. Right? We always talk about this, right? There's the theory of stuff, and then you do the practicality of stuff out in the real world. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't be unleashed into the real world yet because we're not rated. So we go into simulators. And we took these, like the, the first night in the sim, uh, I was in a 73800, which holds a special place in my heart, right? Uh, because that's the airline that my father retired off of yeah. from Legacy Airlines. Uh, so that was the, the, to me, that was a, one of the coolest ones because it's the plane my dad flew. Right. Uh, but that got us into like the automation side and how to use automation and the navigation and programming the box and flying with the navigation and, you know, 
doing the point and shoot method of making sure that you've got it set right and verifying it with your co-pilot to make sure that it's set right, and, you know, and, and programming the box, make sure it's set right. Uh, the one thing I will say out of the three boxes, the 7-3 box seemed the most intuitive to me. The menus made sense. The way that the button layouts made sense. Um, not knocking the Airbus by any means. I like the way that the Airbus flies and handles. But man, the box on that was so much easier to program yep. and deal with than yep. the Airbus. Yeah, the Airbus is a simpler box, but it's limited in its vertical navigation features. Um, there mm -hmm. are software updates that Legacy Airlines will be receiving here uh, in the next 30 days. Uh, it's a it's a huge software update that will change many of those aspects that we often complain about on the Airbus fleet. Um, that the Boeing fleet seems to have a little bit uh, better. The Boeing FMS system is a lot more kind of intuitive uh, to what a pilot needs. Um, it's a little bit mm -hmm. easier to manipulate. Uh, Rob, I wish Rob was here because he could tell you the differences and the pros and cons. We've talked about that a few times, but um, maybe one day we'll have a I'm show sure, that talks about that. I'm sure once he hears this and, you know, you guys start talking about it, he's going to be like, oh, yeah, I know that the 73 is just, you know, the box is so much better. But, man, I like yeah. the way the Airbus flies. He's going to say the same thing I did. Right. I almost guarantee it. And, and the Embraer... Uh, the one that Sandpiper had on the 145, the Universal stack, uh, that one, it, it was a, it, they called it the Barbie Jet. It was a little bit oversimplified and easy to program, but it was very limited in what it could do. And it mm -hmm. was very slow. It was a very antiquated system. I mean, I think mm -hmm. it had like 516 megabyte uh, storage in there. So, like, you could easily. Oh. Uh, at one point they were removing approaches or like because of uh, data storage limitations, uh, some airports will not have the approaches loaded into the FMS system. Please verify before accepting an approach that it is actual something you can select in the FMS system. So, so they had, it had its limitations and I actually learned that I could <laughs> program it so fast and skip ahead, you know, to pages that aren't even on the screen yet to, to the point where you can actually crash it and i'm just saying the, the computer uh, yeah, so so i had to slow down sometimes um but yeah the the 175 and the 190s um those fms systems are a lot more advanced uh the 175 mm -hmm. I, again rob could could wax poetic on the little mouse it has and you know the, the screen oh, that was oh awesome. my god it's oh. I, I did not have the opportunity to fly the 175 i mean i did but i, I chose to, to not do that um and it, that's one thing that i i kind of regret that i didn't have that experience because that system is super uber modern compared to even yeah. the boeing and the and the airbus no, and that's out of the three, right? Obviously, day one was to get you into navigation and automation and stuff like that, right? But when we went into days two and and three into the Sims, like it didn't it didn't have like much into the box as we did in the seven three time. But we did obviously have to do a little bit of programming here and there. And the the you the we flew the one seventy, which is the 175, the 190, yeah. they're all the same cockpit. It's the, you know, just the, it's the difference between a 319, a 320 and a 321. Right. So, um, 
but yeah, the, the those two boxes really seemed very user friendly and and intuitive and just really good. And, and then we get into the Airbus, and it like the box was good, right? But the better part of it was the whole automation suite and how literally everything is done and taken care of for you. Um, but okay, so day one, uh, sim or let's rephrase it: sim sessions one and two were automation and navigation, right? So we kind of got to learn how to use all that and do all that, and we did a. a uh, Cat three auto land in the the seven three. Okay, so day one was, was really, on the really cool. seven thirty seven. Yep, and that was the non motion FTD. So it's it's considered a level five simulator, um, but it's it's you you look at the inside of it and it's an airplane. Like, yeah. I'm going to see if I can uh, change my background it's here just, and throw that. It's one the same up. thing. It's just not on the hydraulics, and therefore it's a non motion flight training device. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm uh, changing my background for the YouTube video here so that people can see the, there's the 7.3. There you go. Wow, it looks, so, it looks uh, cold and snowy out there. <laughs> no, that one was, uh, uh, where were we? Uh, I think we were, it was a, a Kavu day at Memphis. Oh, okay. Right? So, but um, I, we did a lot of things out of Memphis and then a couple out of Reno because we needed to do high elevation and uh, get the jip whiz going and stuff like that, so. Um, but the, the, the 7.3 was really cool. Uh, and then day two of SIM was SIM lesson four and five. And don't ask me why we skipped three. It's a weird way that they organize their, their SIM sessions and everything. Mm -hmm. But SIM session four and five was high altitude operations, upset recovery, and adverse weather. Uh, and that was uh, where we learned the high altitude stall and doing a high altitude stall recovery, uh, upset recoveries, right? Uh, and the one thing I learned with the, the Embraer's, uh, in, in normal airplanes, right, if you go to try to do a, a maneuver, right, you want to kind of maneuver the yoke and you're doing something like this. So you kind of spread your legs out so mm -hmm. that people can, you know, move the yoke around freely. Yeah. You do the complete opposite in Embraer. Yeah. Bring them in. I had oh, oh, 100%. <laughs> yep. Because the, the, the ram's horn, you're doing this with it yeah. versus, you know, doing this mm -hmm. and, uh, for, for those viewers who can't or uh, listeners who can't see us, right? Uh, it's more of a twisting motion of the arms, yeah. like you're driving a car versus a, a yoke, a traditional yoke of an airplane. Yeah. Um, and the our, my partner in the Sims, he was doing the first upset recovery stuff, and I was like, okay, cool. Let me spread my legs out so that you can, you know, have full control control the yoke. I was this close to having my knee smashed with that. Uh, ram's horn yeah and i sucked them in real quick fast and in a hurry yeah yeah i'm surprised i, I didn't brief you on that uh as part <laughs> of the sim briefing because that's i remember the that's a great sim briefing to give um especially for someone who's not been in that airplane so in a traditional boeing aircraft the yoke looks like an upside down horseshoe that's connected to the yoke in the middle and you know as you can turn it right? Or you can pull it back and forth and any combination thereof. So really you have to move your legs aside so that you're not getting hit with the, the yoke as it comes back when you're doing something where you have to pull back suddenly or you know, some kind of maneuver, right? A recovery maneuver. Because normally you would never operate an aircraft like that. I mean, that's how things get damaged. With the Embraer, it looks almost like the letter M, right? So they call it the ram's horns. It's like kind of like a bicycle handlebar. 
And so yep. this letter M, right, is connected at the bottom of the middle to the yoke, which goes backwards and forwards. But then it goes up, and that's where like the the upper tips of the M are where the push talk or the uh, trim uh, button is, right? And then the where you hold on to it are on the outside portions. And it has these like little, like you, know, you got a photo there for those on the video if they see it. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to move out of the way for the people. Yeah, it's got home. a little flat area so that your hand can rest there comfortably. And it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a motorcycle handlebar, you know, um, and there's no twisting involved here. But so when you turn that thing, <laughs> it's like those McDonald's arches, right? And one at the bottom of the M, it goes right into your kneecap if you have your yep. legs spread out. You have to bring your knees to the center. So it's yep. opposite of what you would do in a Boeing aircraft. And if you don't know that, and the first time someone goes fully the wrong deflection to the right, for example, <laughs> and your knees are out there <laughs> right on that kneecap, whack, whack. Oh. And I've had, I've had people get uh, hurt that got hurt. You know, I have friends that oh, have yeah. gotten hurt, like especially in training a new hire class. It's like, God, I was like, I forgot. And, and actually I have what I think around eight or 9,000 hours on that airplane. And even later in my career, you know, it's just, you're unexpecting that reaction and your knee is there and you forgot and you couldn't move it out on time and you will get whacked and get a good bruise. Oh yeah. No, it's uh, it definitely, it came within like a half an inch of smacking into me and I quickly learned, you know, that obviously there's those times back in the, you know, flight instructing world where you know you get those students doing the flight control checks and you're not paying attention or your instructor is not paying attention and you're like, all right, flight controls, whack, whack. and you have the yoke hit him in the in the knee, right? I used to, I was notorious with that with my flight instructor. He was a six foot three, six foot four, like two hundred sixty pound dude, like big dude, right? Um, and uh, I would go through the checklist and in my mind I'm reading and okay, flight controls, wham, wham. And you're not and looking like, over. Oh, it. yeah, no, no, I and I would always forget. Yeah. And I would go full scale deflection on him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, I'm glad you didn't get hurt because some people have really gotten hurt with that. Yeah. The was, Airbus, it, it doesn't happen very often. No. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know I've said this. I said this when we were doing our, our little pre show talk that, like, uh, you know, you Airbus pilots are so spoiled. Like, the, so that was day the next day was sim session three and that was doing adverse weather and uh, runway safety and uh we did that's kind of where we did our high altitude stuff and mm -hmm. the, the uh tara type stuff and mm -hmm. what we did and i didn't i i didn't think this could happen but i oversped an airbus oh yeah, yeah my, so my 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 tara it had me um I, I saw the plane right and you know you hear the traffic traffic right and then it all of a sudden it says traffic climb climb right so 172 world what do you think i do toga climb oh you went to toga <laughs> oh i went to toga <laughs> yeah. and then immediately immediately after i went toga it said descend descend uh-huh so it had me climb and then descend and i'm like uh oh yeah and i didn't pull the throttles back at all Right. So now I'm going down at Toga Power. Oh my nose God. down <laughs> at like eight, nine hundred or eight, nine thousand feet it's per minute because you see the little a green rocket bar. ship you'll ever get. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I oversped an Airbus. Then you hear ding, 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 ding. 
Yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> the next thing I heard. The, the sim instructor's like, well, you know, let's talk about Hey, what happened there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I definitely, uh, definitely learned that like in, in the Airbus world, which this is the other thing that I learned that I absolutely love. You go set your takeoff power, right? To flex, toga, whatever you're doing. Uh, set it. You go, you climb out, what, 1,000, 1,500 feet, and you get that flashing message on your uh, PFD that says throttles to climb. Oh, yeah. Or throttle, throttles to cruise, I should say. So you just knock it back to the next notch, mm -hmm. and you don't touch them again until the airplane calls you a retard when you're landing. Yeah. And that's it. I was so impressed with that. Yeah, every every like operator has a little spin on, on their uh, TARA procedure. Uh, for us, nothing has to happen like extremely fast. No Jackie Chan uh, motions here. You know, it's just, all right, it says uh, traffic, you know, climb. So all you have to do is go click, 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 right? And then you pull yep. back gently into the green arc. The green arc can be really thick. The green arc can be really small because there can mm -hmm. be traffic above you and below you. And the conflict is with the one below you or at your altitude. So it wants you to climb, but not too rapidly. Um, some others, especially when they're like coming right at you, and it goes, traffic, traffic, climb, climb, climb. And so now the green arc is like way up there. So you really have to yep. pitch up. And yes, going in a toga is absolutely an option. But then after you're clear of conflict, you want to slowly bring the nose over and bring the power levers or the the thrust levers back to either MCT or climb or you know back to cruise if if you've recovered completely. So yeah, there's different ways. There are different scenarios. It's not all the same. You could get a descending um mm -hmm. you know, TARA. And again, lowest level automation, click, 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 click. Did I ever tell you the story about the uh the RA that I received? While I was in the bathroom. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, true story. This happened like three or four years ago. So we're we're cruising along. We're we're on a flight to Los Angeles. It was the go home leg. And oh about an hour did out. You, did you tell the airplane it was a go home leg? No, we didn't tell the airplane it was a go home leg. Okay. So everything, everything was going smoothly. And about an hour oh. out, as the, this is back before the change in the FAR. When above 27,000 feet, if one pilot left their station, uh, the other pilot yes. had to don their oxygen mask. And yes, this was they did F mention that in our training, by the way, that it recently just changed to flight level 410. Yeah. Yeah. So above 410, one person must have it on all the time. There. So um, the, the policy was if anyone left their station, like to go to the bathroom, and we did the whole swap with the flight attendant. The remaining pilot had controlled the aircraft, controlled the radios, and they had to have their oxygen mask on and communication established. So that was standard operating procedure. So the captain says, yeah, let's, let's do a bathroom break before we get into start getting in with the arrival and everything into Los Angeles. Okay, sure. He says, oh, you go ahead, go first. I'm like, okay. Mind you, it's at night. We're at 36,000 feet. The autopilot's on. It's smooth as glass. The seatbelt sign is off. Everything is fine and dandy so i he puts on the oxygen mask we do the whole swap i go to the bathroom i maybe in there 60 seconds come out i pick up the intercom i press the little button that i need to press and simultaneously i hear Purr! 
which is the indication that someone's calling from the cabin. And I also hear through the door, traffic, traffic, climb, climb, ding, 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 <laughs> boop, 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 whoop, 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 which is, he had the traffic, he had the RA, he turned off the autopilot, he turned off the level of automation, he started a climb. And I was like, holy shit. So I hang up the phone so that that's one less distraction. And I can feel the airplane climbing rapidly. And the other flight attendant that's there, you know, for security purposes, looks at me and is like, uh, what? I'm like, oh <laughs> Captain had an RA. He's like, what's that? <laughs> I go, well, that's, it was a tra- never mind, never mind. So <laughs> I can feel the airplane climbing and then I can feel the airplane kind of level off and how it's coming. I can feel it kind of descending and then I feel it level off. And I'm just sitting there like, holy crap, you know, what, what's going on up there? And all of a sudden the door swings wide open. The flight attendant grabs me by my tie, pulls me into the cockpit, slams the door shut. I look over. My captain has the O2 mask over one eye, you know, clamped on his head like a freaking alien from the movie Aliens, right? Then he's got a Dr. Pepper all stain all down his shirt. He's sweating profusely. He had just gotten the airplane settled again. And he looks at me <laughs> with this one eye covered and I'm like, dude, I can't leave you alone for a second. What the hell? He goes, well, he goes, that's never happened to me before. He goes, holy crap, man. He goes, she asked me a question. So I lifted the oxygen mask on. I, I unpressurized it, lifted it up like this, turned around to, to face her so I could answer her question. And I, meanwhile, I figured, well, I'll, I'll have a sip of my Dr. Pepper. So I had a sip of his Dr. Pepper. So in one hand, he had a face mask. He's talking to her going, oh, yeah, uh-huh, whatever. And he's drinking his Dr. Pepper. And he said, simultaneously, I got... You're calling in. I got the traffic RA. He goes, I dropped the Dr. Pepper. It exploded on the seat next to me and just stained my shirt. I let go of the oxygen mask. It clamped over one eye. He goes, with my free hand, I, I pressed the autopilot disconnect button, grabbed the yoke, and then I, I had to disconnect both flight directors because now it's yelling at me, climb, climb, climb. So I'm climbing like a bat out of hell. I get to about 260 feet above our cruising altitude of 36,000 feet, and now air traffic control is saying, uh, legacy, where are you going? <laughs> and he replies with, uh, respond, responding to an RA, responding to an RA. And then it says, okay, clear of conflict, you know. Um, and sh- the next thing on the radio was Southwest, say altitude. <laughs> Southwest, <laughs> leveling off at 350. <laughs> they were climbing like a rocket in the 7-3 for whatever reason. And it, and it tricked the... TARA system because it looks at trends and it goes, well, if you're going to, you know, be at that altitude within so many seconds, it's going to trigger an RA, which is exactly what it did. So air traffic controller said, you know, uh, legacy, you can uh, descend back to 360. And the captain's like, oh, okay, okay we're descending. So he descends back down to 360, gets the airplane situated, gets the automation back on, turns on the autopilot. Then he looks over at her and goes, let him in. <laughs> So I was like, oh, my God. And I was really impressed that he handled it. Like, I mean, we were laughing, and he, and he was, like, really distraught, and adrenaline was pumping. I'm like, well, you know, do what you got to do. Get cleaned up, whatever. I'll, I'll, hopefully that won't happen to me. You know? so, so he's gone for a while, and he comes back, and, you know, the flight attendant leaves. And so the two of us are up there, and he's quiet. He's, like, not talking. I'm, I'm kind of worried. I'm like, 
are you okay, man? He's like, you know, I was thinking about it. He goes, those Foucault guys are going to call me tomorrow. <laughs> I went, really? He went, yeah, I was, you know, altitude deviation due to an RA. They might just want to know what happened. Uh, and they're going to call me. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I'm not going to answer the phone. <laughs> I'm like, uh, why? He goes, I want them to call you. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, I want them to call you. And I want you to tell them the truth. When they ask you what happened during the RA, I want you to tell them. I don't know. I wasn't on the flight deck. <laughs> True story, man. I can't make this shit up. I don't think I've laughed harder in a story. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, that's fucking fantastic. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so it bodes <sighs> the question. Okay. You're a new hire on probation on IOE. You're flying a 180,000-pound aircraft with 186 souls on board. You're at 36,000 feet, and the captain says, I got to take a piss. And here she goes to the bathroom. All right, it's Susan. She smokes five packs a day. I got to take a piss. So Susan goes to the bathroom, <laughs> right? Now you're up there, fat, dumb, and happy. The flight attendant's like chit-chatting. Oh, so you're new. Oh. Oh, hi, how are you? Okay. Oh, where do you live? Or where are you based? All that stuff. And all of a sudden you get traffic, traffic, climb, climb, ding, ding, ding. So are you going to know how to react? Are you going to have confidence in your skill set to do everything correctly, swiftly, not too swiftly, but, you know, in a timely manner and being the only pilot at the controls and in the, on the flight deck, are you going to have that confidence? The answer emphatically must be yes. It got me thinking when that happened. And with all my years of experience and all my years on the flight line for a couple of decades now, I always kind of revert back to that question. If it all depends on me, will I be ready? And that's why we get paid what we get paid. That's why we go through the rigorous training that is so expensive to do that most people go, it's not worth it. We spend a $200,000 to learn how to fly an airplane and make, you know, up change for years until I build seniority. Well, that's why. That's why. No, to me, that it doesn't matter. You could pay me peanuts and I would be happy to fly. How dare you, sir? <laughs> oh, please. I've heard you say several times on your show and other pilots have said several times on your show that you don't have to pay us, right? We enjoy doing it, right? We would do it for free. But the pay is a nice aspect of it. Yes, but and, at the end of the day, you're right. We're, we're the last line. We're the two people up in that cockpit that hold in the balance the 186 of our newest, closest, best friends in the back. Yeah. And that's the only thing holding them from plummeting straight down to the earth and dying. On average, in my experience, and, and some people might look at me and say, Tony, you're full of shit. And that's fine. But in my experience, in my time in this industry, I would say about three times in a year, you will earn every red cent that you got paid for that year. 
no, I a hundred percent agree with you. About, about Even from times. the flight instructor level. Yeah. If you're at the command of an aircraft, no matter the size, no matter the situation, there will be a time where you are tested. And the question is, how will you react? And you really, no one can answer that but you in the time that it's happening because you can prepare all you want. You could, you could know every spec, every factoid about your aircraft. You can know the FARs backwards and forwards. You can know those Jeppesen charts or those <clears throat> NOS charts like it's reading, you know, kindergarten books. You could, you could be a whiz at all of it. But until you're put to the test, your reaction is really what counts. And no one can tell you how you're going to react until it happens. Once it happens mm -hmm. that one time, you're going to either go, okay, I, I did everything right. I could not have not done anything better. Or like most of us, you'll say, well, it worked out okay, but man, I, I think I'm going to do, if that ever happens again, I'll do this a little bit different or I'll do this a little bit better or I'll not do that part of it at all um, because we learn and we grow from our experiences like that. So yeah, it always is a testament to what we do as aviators about three times a year. Yeah, no. And I, again, I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Like even in the flight instructing world, right? Uh, when I used to to teach at the old flight school that I did, um, it would be at least once a week that I would almost get into a midair at an uncontrolled airport, which is insane. What? Oh yeah, <laughs> go go fly down at French Valley, and you'll you'll learn quick, fast, in a hurry of how bad the wild, wild west is there in Temecula. Yeah, well, Phoenix was no different. I, I I've had a few close calls myself. Uh, no fault of my own. No fault of my own. Just yeah. people, you know. No, it's just people being people in the air, in yeah. the airplanes. It happens. Mm -hmm. So. Um, but so th that was basically it with the Sims, right? Like we, we, the, so the one cool thing I will say is we got done on, uh, the second day with lessons four and five and we wrapped up a little early. So the, the instructor was like, Hey, what do you guys want to see? Right? Like, what do you guys want to do that you probably wouldn't be able to do any other time? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that we did was I wanted to go up at altitude and see the coffin corner and just watch it diminish until you were basically like this rather than, you yeah. know, a nice spread of like 60 knots. Yeah. And, and so he brought us as close as he could. Right. And then put some turbulence in Ooh. with it. Yeah. And there was a time where I was flying too slow to be flying and too fast to be flying all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was really cool. Yeah. That that's an experience and, and it's still impressive to this day. A lot of pilots I fly with, in the flight management system of the Airbus, it tells you what your max <clears throat> altitude depended upon your current conditions and the weight of the aircraft. Sometimes our max altitude is our service ceiling, and sometimes it is well below that, especially when you're very mm -hmm. heavy, it's very hot, very low pressure, day, um, it absolutely could be much, much lower. And if you're not careful and you, and you accept an altitude that is, say, 35,000 feet, and you think, well, you know, it says max 35,000 feet. Let's go up to 35,000 feet. Well, if it's smooth, you could do it. But that, like you said, that coffin corner is very narrow. Now you start putting in some turbulent air, some pressure gradients, you're going to be in big trouble. And I know pilots that have a rule of 1,000 feet below max at all times. 
Um, some do 2,000 feet below max, a little bit extra conservative in my opinion. But uh, if it's bumpy, yeah, two or 3,000 feet below max is absolutely the way to go. Mm-hmm. So after after the simulator stuff, um, when did you, how did that uh, translate into taking the written test? So on day two, I believe it was, they, uh, they gave us a, a voucher code for the test uh, and we had it scheduled uh, for the Wednesday that we completed the course, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it went basically Wednesday to Wednesday, right? So seven days in quote classroom environment and then the eighth day was your test. And so that was my test on Wednesday. I showed up, I took the uh, 1130 slot because I knew I was going to be leaving later. <laughs> Way later than, you know, the, the uh, 1130 slot. slot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. So um, anyways, I took the uh, uh, 1130 slot because I figured the flight that I had out that day was a 1030 uh, flight uh, back to Dallas or mm-hmm. back from Dallas. And I was like, okay, cool. That'll give me time to take the test. It's a four hour test. You know, I can go change and go to the airport, kind of get settled in, yeah. you know, maybe weasel my way into the legacy lounge or whatever they call it. The Oh, the, uh, lounge. the Ad- Admiral's club. Yeah. The Admiral's club. Uh, Are you a member? Being, no, but being military, they like to let you in for free. Oh, look at you. Yeah. Oh, so, and, and by um, the way, congratulations on your new appointment. Thank you. I got uh, promoted in uh, Jan- or late December, so just call it January, uh, to uh, yeah, East Seven Chief. Chief, yeah. I think you, we had mentioned it at some point, and I don't think I ever took the time to say congratulations. So I definitely want to say that. No, thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's well, well welcome. So thank you. Um, but uh, so I took the test at 1130. Um it's a 125 question test. Uh, like, like Tony was saying, it's, it's a brutal test. Uh, if you want to equate it, it's the, the PhD of aviation, right? It, the, this license is the PhD in aviation and the, the test is, it is no joke. It, it's, it's tough. However, we use this program called Shepherd Air and Shepherd Air is, uh, really, really good at reinforcing the, uh, the, the memory aids and and knowing what the question is saying because let's face it the, the written tests are all uh they're written tests everybody who's taken them knows that you're taking the test to take the test right your your true knowledge comes out when you fly right and, and go through your orals but uh took the test uh, i was taking the practice exams and i got an 87 on a practice exam which i figured was pretty decent yeah. going into it um rolled out of that test in about an hour with a 93%. So you overstudied. <laughs> oh, I overstudied by 23%. <laughs> well, congratulations on completing that. It's a huge milestone. Um, and the, the test, you know, we can't sit here and we could do an entire show on, on what to expect on an ATP test that this is not what we're here for, but what are some no, of the, not at all. What were some of the harder questions that you can remember? Uh, honestly, it was about the performance charts into the airplane world, uh, because it's the first time I've ever seen them. It's the first time ever trying to deal with them and and understand them. And, you know, they were given to us, uh, they give you the, uh, the study guide or not the study guide, the, the, the supplement, right. You know, the book that you get on the, the exam. Yeah. And, uh, I printed it out because I can't read a chart on an iPad. Right. So I need to see it. Yep. Uh, and, uh, 
you know, you're getting uh, Q400s and CRJ 700 charts and forget what else. They're giving you like high level charts that you've never seen before because well, you were in a 172 and I look at my TFD table for my climb. I don't look at this spaghetti chart that has me do these little things to come across and hit my point. Right. So it, that, I think that was the hardest part. Um, and then the, the FARs, right? Like knowing the FARs. It, it, one of the questions was, how many flight attendants do you need on your airplane? Huh. And I'm like, why do I need to know the flight attendants? How right? many like, seats it, are on the airplane? That's exactly it. And it's based off seat capacity, not seating uh, how many people are on the airplane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'll ask you this and see if you know. Let's test your... Uh, uh -oh. ATP knowledge here, Tony. Uh-oh. You it. have a 333-passenger seat jet with 298 flight attendants, or 298 uh, passengers on board. How many flight attendants do you need for the flight? Well, it's one per 50. Okay. So, so how many do you need? So two, four, six, seven. Ah. See? <laughs> hey well so so the next course for me right so obviously we can keep the listeners updated is uh moving from here right whenever i decide to get back to california and the weather cooperates is uh i come back out here uh the evening of the ninth to be out here for the 10th for orientation and the day i'm out here on the 10th is the day that i get put on payroll for sandpiper airlines day one day one and then I have to wait uh, for in-doc class date at that point. But mm -hmm. uh, that is the, the day that I am officially a Sandpiper employee. And I will be working my way to be a pilot in the Sandpiper world. Good. Well, we look forward to hearing all about your adventures at the regional. I'm, I'm super excited. I really am. And I know for the listenership out there, right? Like, uh, I have a couple former students of mine who are now listeners of the show. I've turned a lot of people onto your show, oh, by I, the way. I appreciate well, that. One of them I've turned on to. The other one uh, texted me out of the blue, and she's like, oh, my God, I listened to this podcast, and you're on it. So I got to say hi to Bella out there and Bill, uh, who are former students of mine who uh, listen to this show. So uh, definitely got to put them in here as well. And you were uh, recognized as well. We were in the pre-show. Yeah. We were talking about this, that here you are in Dallas doing your ATP CTP course and someone looks at you and says, aren't you on that podcast? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't exactly <laughs> like that. It was, I was talking and I'd mentioned something about uh, your podcast and how we were, uh, it was the day that you're talking about your uh, 80 knot crosswind day going into Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was talking about that and the Keith, the kid from UND was like, Oh, you listen to Squawk Ident? I was like, I listen. I know Tony. He's like, how do you know Tony? I was like, I've been on his show. And he's like, you're the, <laughs> like, you can see the wheels turning. He's like, you're the guy that took Tony up. I'm like, yeah, that was me. He's like, oh, I figured I, I was listening to the show and I, I knew that you're going to be out here for ATP, CTP. And I was out here for interviews and I was figured maybe we'd cross paths. And well, Keith, we did. We did cross paths. That is so cool. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've been doing this now, the show, for a little over three years. Um, I, I got to admit, those listeners out there that are listening to this one, it's been a while that I've had a consistent regularity with releasing shows. Uh, life happens. 
Things have been extremely busy at home. Uh, the schedules have been busy. And it, I'm sorry, I just I have not put more shows out there. But I promise the, the shows are going to be absolutely engaging. And as the time and schedules allow, I'll start rolling them out with a little bit more frequency. But we are super excited for some of these upcoming shows that we're having. Interviews with some people that have made a huge impact in aviation. I'm not going to spoil it. I don't want to jinx it. It's like the go-home leg, right? We don't talk about the go-home leg uh, until it's nope. done. And then we're like, sweet, yep. we made it 30 minutes early and I made my flight. Great, congratulations. Thanks, thanks for flying with me. Um, so that's, that's where I'm going to leave it. But man, Alex, I'm excited to have you on the show again. I look forward to hearing about your journey and I know you're going to keep us updated. Um, it's an exciting process to have you at the kind of the beginning of this aviation airline career uh, and, and really walking us through this real time. Yeah, no. And that's, and that's one of the things that I knew you were kind of looking forward to about obviously getting in my journey and all that stuff is because I mean, you, you and Rob and Roger and damn near every captain that you've had on the show ha hasn't been through this process in, uh, you know, yeah. at the earliest 20 years. Right. Right. So like for for the viewers and listeners out there to to be able to hear somebody going through this, this is what I want to give back to aviation. I want to be able to to let people know and and mentor and be that like next generation, be the what you are to me to somebody else. Yeah, and and you know, and we've talked about we have a common thread here, which is uh, Captain Elmore, um, and you know, I just recently had a fantastic afternoon spent with uh, Mr. Elmore and he and I have discussed this on the show multiple times. Leadership is all about making sure that you have enough people that you're mentoring so that when it's time for you to move on to the next stage in your career or whatnot, you have enough people to kind of take over what you've been doing and, and step in your shoes and mentor those people beneath them. This industry is so small. And all we really have in this world, regardless of aviation or not, is each other. And by helping each other out, being there, maybe even if it's a, just a word of encouragement, sometimes a simple hello, good morning, how are you, a simple text sometimes can brighten someone's day. Robin Williams is one of the famous people that I admire. We all have those people in the world that we don't know. They're, they're just famous people. And the reason I admire Robin Williams, other than his exceptional talent, his exceptional comedic genius, was that he was very inspiring off camera. One of the most amazing things that I've ever read that came from Mr. Robin Williams is that he said, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. It is what I base the Squawk I didn't show on, to treat each other with respect and be kind and really lift those around you up so that they can achieve their own personal greatness. And I really, truly hope that that is what we are all doing here on this program. Thank you so much for listening to Squawk I Didn't. Thank you for listening to us today. And I got to say, Alex, it's always a pleasure to have you on board. And I look forward to hearing about your next adventure. 
I look forward to being able to share it and again being that mentor like you are to me to, to the new generation of pilots absolutely well said and with that ladies and gentlemen we're gonna wrap it up see ya bye bye bye